It was August 15th, 2001, and there we were. Me and my three-year-old son, Klein, standing on Brian Setzer's tour bus. As a guitar journalist with a decent number of interviews under my belt, I should have felt more at ease. But as I stood there, shoulder to shoulder with a few work colleagues and my firstborn son at my knees, I was nervous as hell. Here was one of my favorite guitarists of all time, someone I'd idolized since Stray Cat Strut, and he's taking the time to chat with us before heading on stage with his 68 comeback special trio. The bus was new, clean and plush, but not fancy. I remember Brian drinking some sort of Tabasco concoction to get his sore throat in shape for the show. But more than that, I remember him joking with Klein in a way that caught everyone off guard at first. All right, Klein, so I, I know it's kind of a lot to expect you to remember tons about that day when you were three years old. <laughs> um, but what do you remember? Well, um, I don't remember a lot. I mean, it was probably one of the first concerts I had ever been to. Um, I remember we went backstage. I'm pretty sure it was before the concert, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure that was it. I don't know. But, yeah. I mean, we went back, and I remember all the bandmates were really cool and stuff, but I think the biggest thing that I really remember about it, um, we went back, and... So Brian was really, I, he was being really nice and stuff. But as a joke, I specifically remember he asked me, he's like, oh, how are you doing? You know, whatever. And then he asked me if I wanted a beer. When I, I knew he was joking, but I mean, I didn't really know how to respond to that being, you know, three, four years old. So, I mean, I kind of just kind of awkwardly stood there. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I didn't really know how to respond to that. And then he kind of just laughed it off. And then he was like, no, do you want a juice or something? I said, <laughs> no, but... <laughs> I didn't really know how to respond to being offered a beer at three years old. Yeah, it took all of us off guard a little bit, huh? But then, yeah, it was, y'all got a good laugh. Yeah. Klein's now in his last year of high school, and he recently took a picture to a stylist and asked her to cut off 13 inches of hair so he'd have a pompadour like Brian's from that 68 comeback special period. Klein's had long hair for years now, so I was pretty surprised. But maybe I shouldn't have been. I mean, he was born early the same year Setzer's smash hit album, The Dirty Boogie, came out, and we were spinning it pretty much nonstop around the house when he was a baby. I guess you never know at any given moment what seeds you're sowing. I'm Sean Hammond, and you're listening to Conversations in the Key of Life, the premier guitar podcast that talks to you about your musical journeys. For today's podcast, we asked PG fans to send us stories about meeting their guitar heroes. Our first guest, Scott Phillips from Hammonds Plains, Nova Scotia, wrote to tell us about the time when Foo Fighter Dave Grohl walked into the Vancouver record store where he worked back in 1996. It was a Saturday morning and there was nobody in the store except a part-timer her name is Tara Bailey. She and I are still friends on Facebook. And um, these four people walk in, and it's two guys and two girls. And I didn't at the time recognize the other guy, but it turns out it was Nate, uh, the bass player in Foo Fighters. Mandel? Yes, Nate Mandel. And the other guy had a black biker jacket zipped all the way up and long 
longish black hair. And I said, Tara, that's Dave Grohl. She said, oh, my God, what do we do? <laughs> I said, well, one of us has got to ask him if he needs any help. So I walk over. I say, hey, man, hey, you know, can I help you with anything? He says, yes, you can. I'm looking for Alanis Morissette's first two CDs. I'm like, okay. That was kind of a shock, I bet. Just seems un uncharacteristic, I guess. Yeah, and that he knew they existed as well, because this was, most people would only know Jagged Little Pill, which had come out the previous year. Right. And she did two albums, one called Alanis from 1991, and another one called Now is the Time from 1992. These were dance pop records. I mean, big hair, dance moves, and everything. Way different than the alternative vibe of Jagged Little Pill. Yeah, it was like Janet Jackson influenced. Very much like that. Nice. <laughs> so her record label, Maverick uh, Warner, wanted this out of the system. And um, Universal was the label, the MCA. So they were deleting them. And we had them on the delete list. But I had one copy of each left. So they're like trying to redact their records. Like, this never happened. You never heard this. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep, never happened. So I went back and got them and took them up to the cache and... Um, Tara is, her hands are shaking as she's taking his master card. <laughs> um, I said, I got to ask you, why are you buying these? And he said, well, I'll tell you. He said, we're just finishing our second album and our drummer has left and we're stealing her drummer. <laughs> and I, and I knew who Taylor Hawkins was and I said, Oh, Taylor Hawkins. Yeah. And, uh, Dave said, well, we're taking her out for dinner next week in LA. And I sort of want to, you know, thank her for letting us steal the Dharma. Uh, but I can't help myself. I'm, we're driving her home, and I'm just going to put these CDs in the CD player and see what kind of reaction I get. <laughs> so at that point, he, did she know he was that Taylor was coming aboard, or was it sort of like they were going to ease into it? I really don't know how it was. I think it, it probably was a, a said complete at that point, and, uh, and that you know she already knew, and he just wanted to thank her, you know. Yeah. So uh, he's really cool. Shake, you know, shakes my hand and shakes the girl's hands, and he, he leaves. And then the receipt's there, and Tara turns to me and she said, "Can I photocopy the Mastercard receipt? Because it's got his signature on it." Like, are you kidding? It's got his number on there. And she said, well, I'll just make a little template, and all you can see is the signature. I'm like, okay, fine. So she did that. So then uh, <laughs> you jump ahead now to July 31st, 1997, about a year later, there's an album release promo show at a place called The Rage in Vancouver. This is why I'm still living out there. Um, and it's a double bill. And it's put on by their record company at the time, which was EMI Canada. Um, and there was two bands playing with new albums that had probably been released, I think, I hadn't looked the dates up, but probably within a month of this show. So it was the Foo Fighters who had just released The Color and the Shape, which, as you know, if you've watched the movie, Dave went back and redid all the drums on, and Radiohead, who had just released OK Computer. So this is a free show. There's maybe about 400 people there. I'm standing in the middle of the floor, well, by the front, you know, front of the stage, probably about 10 feet from the stage. And... Uh, one of the other managers, a guy named Mike Barnes, taps me on the shoulder and he says, your buddy Dave is standing beside you. So I turn to my left and there, sure enough, Dave Grohl is standing right there. 
so I lean over and I said, do you remember buying the first two Atlantis CDs from my store about a year ago? And he looked at me and he just burst out laughing. And he said, she turned all colors red. Yeah, it was perfect, man. It's totally perfect. Thank you. And then all, then Taylor walked over and said, hey, man, we got to go. And he said, hey, <laughs> I got those Atlantis CDs at this guy's store. <laughs> Taylor smiled that smile and slapped me on the shoulder. Hey, man, that's cool. And then they left. So that's my Dave Gold <laughs> That's awesome. And then there's Eddie Heinzelman from Spring Hill, Tennessee, who told us about the 1989 gig that went horribly awry for his band Firebrat. It was at a bar just outside of Cincinnati called the Hog Trough, and he pretty much had his life saved by pioneering rock guitarist Lonnie Mack. I was in college and uh, 19 years old, and during the summer, um, from the time I was a, a, a kid, 13, 14, I had played in country bands. Uh, I played in a country band with my brother, um, and then high school, I put together you know, a rock band with some friends, um, and then in, you know, when I was 19, I joined a, a, a band, saw an ad in a local paper looking for a guitar player. Um, for this rock band and went out and I was really impressed by the by the singer and the drummer and decided to uh, audition. What was the band called? <laughs> the band was called Firebrat. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and so uh, so Firebrat, I mean we played we played a lot of covers. We did some originals, you know, they had the 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 look and the and the sound. We did um ACDC and Motley Crue and that kind of stuff, you know, it's it kind of a hard rock band. And, um, the, uh, the way the, the incident, as I refer to it happened, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I played with them for mostly for one summer. Um, and things just didn't, uh, pan out kind of like what I thought they would, you know, um, was it a lot of a lot of young guys, a lot of naivete going on? And well, yeah, I mean, a lot of fire and and you know, going to take over the world and release albums and write songs and you know, be the next big thing. And and we just ended up playing these, you know, just a ton of gigs for no money and <laughs> <laughs> you know. So so one particular gig though really sticks out yeah it actually happened in a little town called outside of cincinnati called lawrenceburg uh, lawrenceburg indiana right across the river um we had actually uh, i had told the band that i was going to leave and um uh, at the same time the, the singer and the drummer decided that they were kind of wanting to do something else and so the band was going to break up and and we had done a final concert at this bar that we had always played at that was kind of our home bar, you know, and we always did good there. So we did a final concert, big show, good night. About a month later, um, I'm teaching guitar at a, at a music store and I show up after school to the store and there's a phone call for me and it's the, um, it's the sound guy who's kind of the, um, the manager guy too. I mean, he, he handled all the bookings and, and did all the, the administrative stuff, you know? And, um, he says, Hey, uh, where are you at? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, we got a gig tonight. <laughs> I said, we don't have a gig tonight. He's like, we, no, we've, we've got a show. And, and, uh, 
you know, you know, we start at nine o'clock and this was, it was six or something like that, you know? Um, okay. So, so not only had Firebrat called it quits, but you guys were probably not on the greatest of terms because you had decided to leave. Correct. Uh, and I think that all kind of plays into it eventually, but, uh, we, um, so we actually do a conference call. Um, the, the guy I'm on the phone and he's on the phone and, he, and I said, well, I, you know, I'm not going unless I hear that everybody's going, you know? Um, so he gets the bass player who's on the phone. He says, yes, he's, he'll be there. Um, he gets another guitar player on the phone. Yes, he'll be there. And I was like, well, if we got a bass player and, and a drummer, we can play the gig, you know, even if not everybody shows up or something. So I cancel all my students, uh, really upset the guy, the manager at the music store as I bolt out and fly home to get my gear. Um, and I finally get to the venue and it's, uh, seven o'clock or something like that. And there's nobody there. Like not even employees or just the, just the bar crew. Well, there's employees, but I mean, there's nobody else from the band, you know? And we, we always, we had a, a U-Haul that we had, or well, that they had purchased a used U-Haul and that's what we hauled all the PA and the lights. I mean, we had, there was, there was a ton of gear. Um, and the U-Haul wasn't there. Um, (laughs) I was like, okay, this is really strange. So I walked into the bar, and there's the 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 bartender, a couple guys at the bar, and uh, and the drums are set up. So I'm. This is you know really where the story starts to get a little weird. Now, and they're they're drums you recognize the the drummer that you used to play with. That's his set. Correct. Yeah, it's his set, and they're set up. And I was like, well, this is. Okay, I said, so I asked her where they were. She said, oh, they came in and set up the drums, and then they went to get something to eat. Okay, great. Um, but she asked me for my ID. Uh, of course, I said, why? And, and I told her I was 19, and she said, well, you're not even allowed to be here. Because, you know, I said, you know, she asked me for a permit and paperwork, you know, to perform. And I said, I've been doing this since I was 13. I've never had to have a permit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but okay, uh, I guess this is going to be a problem. So then the drummer was 17. So, uh, you know, who knows? But uh, I waited and waited. Finally, the singer and the drummer show up. And still, there's nobody else there. So it's just the three of you. It's just the three of us. And so, and, and again, it turns out to be the three of us that had left the band, right? <laughs> um, so I, I call... They won't let me use the phone in the bar, so I have to walk up the street to a payphone. Uh, back when there were payphones, right? Right. Uh, so I walk up the street, the payphone. I call uh, Chris, the sound guy. Uh, hey, where is everybody? We're on our way, man. We're on our way. We're just running a little behind. I'm like, well, it's you know, it's eight o'clock. We've got an hour, so you better get here. Um, at nine o'clock, there's still nobody there. The bar owner shows up. He's incredibly large, and he's incredibly drunk. <laughs> Great combo. Absolutely. And um, he, he goes by the name Hog. <laughs> um, the bar we were playing was called the Hog Trough. <laughs> okay, so he's, he's the head hog. He's the head hog. Um, so, of course, 
there's no band playing at nine o'clock when he gets there. Um, there's three of us standing around and he immediately flies off the handle. Um, and you know, we're telling him, say, well, all we have is drums and I have a guitar. Um, there's no PA, so there's no way we can even, the three of us just kind of perform, you know? Yeah. And, uh, Long before Jack White and the Black Keys made a guitar drum duo <laughs> acceptable, they still needed <laughs> microphones to sing. Exactly, <laughs> and so uh, so the so the night continues to progress and get worse. I, uh, so I go back up to you know the payphone. I even called. We used a booking agent at the time. I called the booking agent. Hey man, you know the bartender wants his or the bar owner wants the money. He said he you know he already you know put down a deposit and paid for tonight. Um, he's asking us for the money. The booking agent says, okay, man, we'll, you know, we'll straighten it out. We'll be right there. Of course, they never showed up at all. So there's some dirty tricks going on and several people are involved. Absolutely. The rest of the band never showed up the entire night. At this point, I mean, you've got a 17-year-old, a 19-year-old, and, and I think our singer was 20, 21 maybe. Um, and the bar owner won't let us leave. He won't let us break down the drums. Um, in fact, he's threatening to break you down. Absolutely. He, 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 <laughs> he and his buddies there at the bar now are threatening to, uh, break our arms and break our legs. If we even touch the drums or, you know, we, we aren't allowed to leave at one point, one of the guys in the band, I don't know who it was, call the police and say, uh, there are underage kids in this bar being held against their will. <laughs> the police show up. They shove us into the bathroom and won't let us come out. The, the owners of the bar yes. and the bodyguards and all that, whatever, Absolutely. the bouncers, they, sh they hide you. They hide us in the bathroom. The, the owner goes out with the contract, says, I've got a signed contract. The band's, you know, not showing up. Uh, you know, we've heard that there's underage kids in here. No, there's nobody here. You know, I'm keeping the drums, and the police leave. They don't come in the bar or anything. They just leave. Um, at this point, I mean, this has been going on now, you know, for several hours. And uh, okay, we're not even to the best part, though. I mean, right? we're not even to the we're not even to the part that made you contact Premier Guitar, and already this is like pretty. This is pretty sketchy. What were you feeling? You're, you're in a closet. How yeah. big was the closet? Oh man, it was. It, it, there were the three of us and 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 two bodyguards, you know, and and uh, or in, in like a cleaning supply closet or cruisers. what? Well, it was like the 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 inside of the bathroom, you know, like right as you get into the okay uh, the front part of the bathroom as you, as you go. So um, at this, you see your life now, flash before your eyes. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought <laughs> I, I I really thought there's there's no way we're gonna get out of this without. Uh, bloodshed. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to get really hurt. Um, and since we were the smallest, uh, I figured it would probably be us. Um, so um, you're looking around the closet for some weapons. Well, yeah, I was just we're, well, the three of us are just sort of looking. It's like you know, when can we make a break for it? If you I know? get the handle out of that mop. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so finally, the police leave. They let us back out of the out of the closet bathroom area, um, and we're standing there going, "Look, man, I, it's it's 11:30 at night now. Obviously, we're not going to play. We don't have any money. You're not going to get any money from us. 
let us go and let's sort this out later. And he, he refuses. And at that moment, this guy who had been playing pinball in the corner this whole time, he had been there since the beginning, gets up. For like four hours? Yeah. Three, four hours? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he gets up and he comes over and he, and he, he says, hold on, boys. And he goes over to Hogg, the owner, and he talks to him for a little bit and sort of, you know, talks him down. And he, and he comes back over to us and he says, look, you know, this has really gotten out of hand. And I know that you guys aren't to blame. Somebody's really, you know, messing with you here. This is the and pinball wizard. This talk. is the pinball wizard. And at that, and he's got Not a baseball, that pinball wizard. He's got a baseball cap on, you know, and, uh, and he says, so I've talked to the bar owner, and he's going to let you go, but you have to leave the drums. And so, of course, we were like, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, I look, and it's Lonnie Mack. Lonnie Mack is the guy who's been sitting at the pinball machine with the baseball cap on and, and sort of watching this whole thing unfold. Oh, um, man. Were you were you a fan of Lonnie's? Oh, I'm a like... huge fan of Lonnie's. Uh, he was one of my well, again, you know, from goes back to my second guitar teacher when I was. Yeah, you, you started delving into the blues. Delving into the blues, absolutely. You know, so you're thinking, Lonnie, what took you so damn long? <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, partly. I was like, man, you could have, you know, you could have helped us uh, an hour ago or so, but. Uh, but then suddenly it turned into everything was cool, you know, with the owner. He was like, okay, that's fine. And, and then we sat there at the bar with, with Lonnie and, uh, you know, he's, I got an autograph on a napkin and, and, <laughs> and talked about, about songs and talked about guitars. And I was like, and he, he, at the time he was like, you know, well, it's too bad you guys aren't playing, you know, I, you know, come up and, and play Cincinnati jail with you or something. I was like, oh man, no way. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Well, at least you had your ass saved by him. I mean, absolutely. Oh God. absolutely. So he helped. So by the time you guys were out of there, um, Lonnie had helped convince Hog to not keep the drums, even to just let you go. No, actually, the, that that's where 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 the negotiations stalled. Is that we ended up we did end up the drummer had to leave his drums. He had to actually later on go back and. Um, they went to court over it. The drummer actually had to pay. Uh, I don't know why or how all this unfolded. Uh, I wasn't part of this, this, but the drummer ended up having to pay the deposit back to the club owner to get the drums. Oh, wow. Well, at least you guys escaped with all your limbs and you got, you got to meet Lonnie. Absolutely. You get an autograph. That, that was, <laughs> that was the, that was the best part. It kind of uh, made the, made the evening almost worth it <laughs> oh man what were you guys thinking when you got out like holy shit can you believe that that was awesome wait you're like trying to decide whether it was better that it happened or wish it never happened exactly as i said i've got the ultimate gig from hell story and you know meet your guitar idol all at once uh, because he saved your ass you know and and um and the thing is i've 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 seen lonnie live ever you know uh, but I've never actually gotten a chance since then, you know, to see him again or to speak with him. And, uh, you know, 
just you know talk about the incident and thank him again. I've sent him some some emails and stuff, but uh, haven't don't know if he actually ever got them. But yeah, well, that's an awesome story. I mean, <laughs> I've geez. played you know places with chicken wire and and places that have you know cleared out with fights and stuff in in my day, but uh, but that was still the the scariest I think. Next up, we've got Michael Adams from Mike and Mike's Guitar Bar in Seattle, and his story revolves around early Weezer and an uber-fanatical tribute band he formed with his business partner, Mike Ball. When Mike and I first became friends, we bonded over a love of jazz masters and a love of uh, surf rock, but what really got us on the same page was our love of early Weezer sounds, songs, B-sides, all of it. Anything related to 90s Weezer was the thing that drew us together. Um, and so it was a couple years ago, after we had the shop and we had you know, the ability to acquire cool pieces of gear where we thought, like, we could make the most badass Weezer tribute band ever. <laughs> we, uh, and so we started acquiring uh, all of the gear that they actually used back in the 90s from the, the Marshall 810 cab uh, to the, uh, you know, the Mad Amp bass head, we got that. And then we decided to build exacting recreations of the instruments they used, including Matt Sharp's bass with the, the white worn away part on the body, uh, and Rivers Cuomo's, um, uh, blue strat, that famous blue strat, um, that he played live. Uh, and we just, <laughs> just started geeking out really hard on the internet through, uh, Instagram and all of that, people started getting excited. And before we knew it, uh, Weezer themselves had taken notice of what we were doing. And uh, Matt Sharp in particular was like egging us on and showing us the back of the base and saying, hey, you missed something and <laughs> step up your game. Uh, and so momentum build and Weezer heard about who we are. Uh, I got to know Scott Schreiner, the current bass player, a little bit. Okay, so how did you guys get on Weezer's radar in the first place? After you, you were already up and going as a band and gigging and all that, or were you just playing for fun? Or it, it really started uh, well. One from having the guitar shop and a, a high level of vintage gear. Scott Schreiner was the first one we we got in touch with. Uh, he wanted some Rickenbacker basses. We never made the deal. Uh, but then after that, he just started really paying attention to what we were doing with the tribute band. He showed the pictures to uh, a lot of different people. The Weezer social media people picked up on it, started tagging Rivers and tagging uh, Matt Sharp and all that. So it really was the, the Weezer tribute band that got us noticed first uh, because we were doing such... Uh, exacting replications of the the instruments and all of that cool so okay so what happened from there when you you actually met the guys because because i i had heard that weezer was going to play in seattle um and because we talked to scott schreiner frequently i thought well let's uh let's see if we can get some tickets so uh they were playing seattle's deck the hall ball back in december and uh, i wrote to scott schreiner through social media and said hey i don't mean to bother you but uh it would be great if we could uh, get into this show and come meet you guys and show you the instruments. And he was excited about it. Said, yeah, yeah, there'll be tickets for you. Um, so the night of the show, we went down to Seattle's Key Arena, uh, put our names in at the, uh, the concierge location, and there were no tickets. I think Scott forgot. And that began a three-hour uh, journey of sneaking in 
uh, the whole show and sneaking backstage. So walk us through that story. What happened? So you, you get up to Will Call, there's no tickets, and you're like, shit. Then what? <laughs> I was uh, completely bummed. I felt like Eeyore the entire night. I was so like, oh, we forgot. He doesn't really want to see us. Like, uh, I was so nervous. I was so overwhelmed by that emotion that, yeah. Scott hates us. Exactly. <laughs> Man, this is a huge mistake. We're bothering our heroes. Like, uh, it was the worst. Uh, but it was me and Mike Ball and our good friend CJ. And CJ is the most uh, positive person I've ever met in my life. And he looked me square in the eye and said, man, tonight we're going to manifest our dreams. And I, I went, okay. <laughs> and so we found three people that were leaving the concert early. And we went up to them and CJ said, uh, hey, are you guys Weezer fans? And they said, no. And we said, we are. Can we have your tickets? And they, they said, okay. And they gave us their printed out, uh, you know, inkjet printer tickets that they had. Um, they had some lady's name on them. Uh, and so we walked up to the re-entry gate. Um, and CJ turned around and said, manifest your dreams. And walked up to the re-entry <laughs> gate. And they scanned his ticket and they let him go in. And uh, that's when Mike Ball went, oh, wow, this is easy. And uh, they scanned his ticket. He went right in. I walked up, they scanned my ticket. The machine obviously made a, a no sound. Like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and they just let me in. And I was blown away. <laughs> but this is totally not something I'd ever do. I would never sneak into a concert. So I was, I was just fucking nervous the whole time. <laughs> I, I was a mess. But I let CJ and Mike go before me. So, uh, so we went and found our seats. And, and CJ was like, no, these seats are terrible. We're going down on the floor. What I didn't know was that you needed a separate wristband to get down on the floor. Uh, so again, CJ says, manifest your dreams. <laughs> Do you have a tattoo that says that? Yeah, name? no, no, no. I've got it all over my body. It's on my forehead. It's, <laughs> it's everywhere. Uh, because, okay, manifest your dreams. Manifest your dreams. Every time I look in the mirror. Um, so CJ, CJ walks down to the floor. There are security guards. And you have to have this wristband. And they go, wristband. And CJ holds his arm up, and there's no wristband there. But, again, they let him through. <laughs> I don't know. Mike Ball goes second. That dude knows how to work Yeah, it. I don't know. He's wearing a leather jacket. He just puts his hand up like he belongs there, and they let him through. Right before I get to the security guards, this drunk guy pushes me out of the way and yells, I'm going down. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Walks in front of me. The security guard immediately sees that he's wearing a short sleeve T-shirt, no wristband. Throws him out. Just throws him out. Uh, again, super nervous. I walk down on the floor. The, the little, the guy who's like not a security guard, but just te checking tickets down at the end says, wristband. I just hold my arm up and he lets me pass. Uh, amazing. <laughs> so uh, we get down on the floor. We watch the show. I tweet at Scott Schreiner that it, uh, the show had better be good for what we just went through. <laughs> and, uh, it was great. It was a fantastic show. Show ends, we go and have a beer, and CJ goes, now nah, this night's still not over. We're going backstage. Um, so we, uh, we grab my, we brought along the Rivers Cuomo guitar that I made. Uh, we grab it. Wait, so you had to go back outside and then go through all the security again? Uh, well, no. Here's the thing. We went back, got the guitar, and then CJ goes, let's just go up the loading dock. Uh, and so we sneak back to where all the tour buses are. Uh, we walk up the loading ramp, 
past security guards who don't bother checking us, I think probably because we have a guitar. So they think you're like roadies or something? They think we're roadies, and we just we just walk past everybody. I mean, seven or eight security guards who like nodded us and let us through. The only person who said something was when we got to the service elevator. Uh, and that door opened up, and the guy folds his arms and looks at us. And he goes, man, all right, where do you want to go? <laughs> so he knew, but he wasn't going to crush your dreams. He's like, ah, you made it this far. Exactly. And he was, he was cool. His name was Andre. He was the nicest guy ever. Uh, yeah, so we get on the service elevator. CJ just belts out the number two, floor two. Uh, and that takes us to the artist lounge at the Key Arena. Did he know that, or was he just guessing? No, CJ was just guessing, man. <laughs> Manifest your dreams, seriously. This CJ guy is awesome. He is the best. Uh, Manifest your dreams. Manifest your dreams. Uh, <laughs> so we, we get to the artist lounge. Weezer isn't there, but we meet a guy, uh, I think from Ireland, who's a tour manager for another band, and he takes us down behind the stage. We talk for a minute. He points out a hallway that's, guarded by security guards and he says i think that's where weezer is and again cj goes you know the deal manifest your dreams uh <laughs> we walk past the security guards who are keeping out other people uh and at the end of that hallway is a little makeshift production office that says weezer on the outside and that's where we find their tour manager their uh, stage manager uh and a few roadies uh and their social media girl <laughs> So we go in there, CJ knocks, hey guys, we have a guitar we want to show to Rivers Cuomo, is that cool? <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, everyone's silent for a moment and everyone goes, break it out. And so I broke out the, uh, the Strat that I have that has all of the features that Rivers' guitar had, including all of the uh, electrical tape, as you saw from the uh, David Letterman 1995 performance, and... Uh, they go, wow, it looks just like his old guitar. Cool, we'll go get him. Um, and then a minute later, uh, Mike Ball is standing outside the production office, and I see his eyes get wide, and he mouths, he's coming. <laughs> we shuffle out into the uh, hallway, and CJ stops Rivers and says, hey, man, we have a guitar we want to show you. Is that okay? Rivers goes, yeah, bring it out. And I broke out the guitar, and I said, do you remember when you played David Letterman in 95? And he flipped out when I showed him the guitar. He couldn't believe how close we got it. Uh, he held it. He played it. He told me it felt exactly like the real thing, which was the greatest thing ever. That was like, it put me over the moon that night. Um, so the version that you were modeling was that exact, like whatever sticker or ding was on the guitar for that Letterman performance? Uh, if you watch that Letterman performance, his guitar is just, it was always covered in electrical tape for some reason, but that exact pattern. Uh, I copied exactly. Uh, from that performance. From that okay, performance gotcha. on YouTube. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So he played it and uh, <laughs> he was really nice. And you could tell he wanted to get back to his tour bus, but he, he stood there and geeked out with us for a bit. Uh, and then he went, oh, wait, so you have these, these Weezer instruments. Are you in a band? And uh, we said, yeah. And he goes, is it a Weezer cover band? <laughs> <laughs> did, he, did he seem like oddly intrigued yet kind of creeped out uh, yeah yeah i think that's the appropriate <laughs> response yeah so uh we yeah yeah we're those guys we're in a weezer tribute band uh and he was like oh that's really cool guys what's your band name and we told him our band name it's my name is jonas brothers uh and he laughed thought it was hilarious um and then we asked for a picture we got a group shot 
he held the guitar. Uh, it was a dream come true. And uh, yeah. And then we left quickly. <laughs> well, that is so cool, man. Thank you, Mike, for sharing the story, for writing to, for responding to our social media posts, hashtag I met my guitar hero. That, that, that's a doozy, man. And last but not least, we talked to PG reader Frank Levine. Now, Frank worked at 8th Street Music in Philadelphia in the late 70s, and he told us about the day he got a phone call from someone with a really heavy British accent. That call led to the experience of a lifetime. It was really pretty funny because I was certain it was a phony phone call, you know. I, I pick up the phone, uh, hello, 8th Street Music, this is Frank speaking, how may I help you? And uh, he goes, yeah, we're with you. <laughs> We need some gear. Do you have Rotosound strings and all these different drum heads? He starts running off this list, and I'm like, well, yeah, 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 we have all that stuff, but, you know, you need to come down and get it. And he goes, no, 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 I need you to pull this order for me. Could you understand what he was – I mean, you were doing your impression of a thick British accent. Oh, I understood him. We, you know, I had my doubts, but um, who were in town that day, it was pretty typical for people to call up and uh, – ask if we had stuff in stock. It just wasn't typical for someone to ask me to put together this huge order. I mean, it took two of us to actually pull all this stuff. They wanted tons of stuff. So uh, I went to the boss and said to him, what do you think? And he said, just go ahead and pull it. It's a slow day. Worst comes to worst, we put it all back away. So you guys weren't sure if this was someone prank calling you? Well, you know, people like to play jokes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know... Uh, I just had my doubts at first, but um, the way the guy was talking, uh, I just, there was that little bit of legitimacy to it, you know? Too detailed to be a prank. Exactly, exactly right. So after that, um, me and um, this other salesman uh, who currently works for Fender, uh, this guy named Bill Kamiski, we pulled the order, mm -hmm. and a couple hours later, these guys come bouncing in. There were two of them. Hey, we're with you, <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, they were dressed like rock stars, you know, more or less. And, and then they said, yeah, yeah, we're with you. Where's Frank? And, uh, I came popping up. Hi, I'm glad to see you guys. And we got a big stack of stuff. And, uh, they started running around the store, looking at everything. And, uh, you know, it was, it was Kind of fun just seeing the roadies from the who. And I wish I could remember the guy's name, but he was like the head guy, um, the head roadie. Anyway, we had um, well, typical music store promotional items everywhere. And there was this uh, rubber microphone, an inflatable, like a, like a <laughs> balloon. Yeah. Uh, hanging from the ceiling. You mean like three feet long or something? Yeah, exactly. It was an AKG three-foot inflatable microphone. <laughs> Uh, you could play with it in a pool. It would be that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And he says, how much for the mic? Well, the mic's not for sale. It's just a promotional. Item. Oh, God, I have the mic. <laughs> it's Roger's birthday. God, I have the mic. <laughs> you know, can't leave without the mic. So I, I went over to Mark and I said, these guys are itching for this mic. Do you want to give it to him? Do you want to sell it to him? What do you want me to do? You know, he says, just give it to him. I've got three or four more in the back. <laughs> And uh, he actually went and got me one from the back so we didn't have to rehang it um, from the ceiling. 
And they were just thrilled. They said, you know, we want to do something to thank you for all this. How would you like to come to the show tonight? <laughs> no, I'd rather stay home, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> of course I'd like to come to the show tonight. They said, well, you know, come down to the Spectrum. And uh, they told us to come to the Will Call Gate. And I uh, said, bring the other salesmen, bring your girlfriends. We'll have four tickets for you waiting at the uh, waiting at the will call uh, window. So, um, uh, by the way, uh, the catchphrase, we're with the you, <laughs> we used that at the store for a good month. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was out of our mouths, every other word, we're with the you. <laughs> anyway, we get down to the... The will call, oh, I don't know, 7 o'clock at night, something like that. We got down there a little early. And uh, there's a manila envelope with not only four tickets, but four backstage passes. <laughs> You're like, score. Score indeed. <laughs> now, this is before the laminated ones. These were kind of a sticky piece of cloth. You know, you peeled off the backing and stuck it on. Yeah. So I had it on my, I sewed that thing to my denim jacket until I outgrew that puppy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we got in the backstage, and um, the guy that was there, he sees us, and he says, oh, Frank, you're here, you know? Come on, come on over. I want you to meet the boys. And he takes us around, shows us in the green room. Uh, Roger and Pete were having a bit of a row, <laughs> uh, but they stopped for a minute to shake hands. and They stopped, stopped punching each other enough to shake hands? They were punching each other frantically they punched each other all the way to the stage by the way <laughs> just screaming at each other like they were vigorous enemies <laughs> oh wow was it really physical like were they really yeah no way. i mean it wasn't like serious punching like you know two guys in a fight it was more like two brothers gotcha okay well that's better it was so bizarre to see because you heard rumors of this i mean we had anyway but to actually see it and then they got out on stage, did their set, came off, and continued the argument. Like they <laughs> it was hilarious. Was Roger beating Pete about the head with a big inflatable mic? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> that would have been very cool, and it would have made the story even better. <laughs> so did you get to go say hi? Uh, we did get to say hi. I met, we met all the guys in the band. And um, at the point where the show was going to start, the guy asked me, Hey, you want to go down to your seats now? Or would you rather watch from the wings? Well, how can I not watch from the stage? I mean, you're basically on the stage. Yeah. What am I, an idiot? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, screw the seats. Let's see. Once in a lifetime chance to watch from the side of the stage or go be with the masses. Hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, they were like front row seats, but who wanted them? Yeah. You know, and it was just fabulous. I mean, I felt... I don't know. I felt like I was part of the entourage. <laughs> yeah, it's a glimpse behind the curtain, literally. Exactly, exactly. I met Pete and Roger first, and the most surprising thing was that they were arguing and stopped for long enough to just say, oh, hello, nice to meet you. And that was about it. <laughs> Same with um, John and uh, Mooney. Uh, they took about a minute mm -hmm. to, to say hello I mean, we were just a couple of guys from the music store, you know, they didn't really care about us, but they were, they were polite and kind enough to, to acknowledge us. <laughs> like, where are the women? Well, I'm going to get to that. It, it gets <laughs> even better, Sean. Oh, wow. All right. Oh, yeah. 
So after the show, we went back to what was like the green room area. And there was food laid out and assorted party favors, mountains of party favors, in fact. <laughs> um, what sorts of party favors? Well, you know, the illicit sort. <laughs> White powdery substances, uh, you know, rollable herbs. I was trying to keep it clean for the interview, but there was drugs laying around everywhere. Anyway, there were, you know, all the hoi polloi from the Philadelphia music scene were there and uh, reporters and all this stuff. And, you know, just some fans that managed to get backstage. I think there were some winners of a radio contest in the back there as well. And we're all partying and having a good time. And um, finally, the guy who came to the store to, to, to pick up all the stuff, he, he kind of did one of those, uh, I need everyone's attention. Um, we need all the gentlemen to leave now. <laughs> and I was like, huh, that's interesting. They threw all the men out. Um, some of the guys dates went with them but the majority stayed behind they basically threw the guys out so the the boys in the band could pick their uh choice of women many relationships ended that night i i'm guessing many many relationships ended that night <laughs> um, the band i guess made their choices and then they let us back in uh to continue eating and partying but the the who actually left in their limousines and went to a hotel at, at that point and there was a an after party at some hotel, but I never made it to that. I was uh, I may have been somewhat incapacitated by that point. <laughs> oh man, what a great story! Uh, yeah, so, it, it it was just a great experience. Did that make you a bigger fan of the Who after that, or did it was it never possible to listen to certain songs the same way again? Um. You know, I don't think I could have been a bigger fan of The Who than I was or am still. Uh, they were just my favorite live band, uh, as well as, you know, probably my top five recording artists. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, to actually see them uh, and, and be with them, like, up close and personal, it probably changed uh, my view of them a little bit. Uh, I saw them as human, you know, they weren't <laughs> just rock gods yeah. anymore. Uh, they were human beings and that was kind of neat. But I mean, to this day, I'll die thinking of that story, you know? I bet. That's, just... that's, a, that's a gem. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of people would rather certain parts of that story were never brought up again, but I'm so glad you shared it with us and all the Premier Guitar audience out there. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Sean Hammond, and you've been listening to Conversations in the Key of Life, the premier guitar podcast that talks to you about your musical journeys. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to check out our other podcasts where we talk to PG fans about their amazing gear finds, inspiring stories of using the guitar as therapy, and more.